Paul wrote and spoke with a special kind of authority. And as we will see in a moment, his apostolic authority was even confirmed by miracles. Friends, I do think it is important for us to recognize that there are no apostles in the church today. In fact, Paul was the last to be appointed as such. After him, there were only evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. We are to notice that in the book of Acts, Paul appointed elders in the churches that he planted. Never did he pass along his apostleship. And I do think that this needs to be stated clearly, for all around us, there are Pentecostal and apostolic churches that make this fundamental error. They fail to recognize that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. That is what Ephesians 2.20 says. We'll come to that text in due time. But when a building is constructed, friends, the foundation is laid one time. It is laid once, and not over and over again. Upon the foundation, once it is laid, the building is constructed. And so it is with the church. First there were apostles and prophets. Christ himself was the cornerstone. They revealed the word of God to us. But just as we do not expect there to be a continual succession of Christ's, neither do we expect a continual succession of apostles and prophets. All three are said to be foundational in Ephesians 2.20. Again, the text says that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In the church today, there are officers and members. The officers are called elders and deacons, and the elders, being also called bishops, pastors, shepherds, and teachers, they, they are given a particular task. They are to preach and teach the word of God that has been entrusted to them. And where did they get that word of God? Well, they received it from the apostles and the prophets. They are to take that word the word of Christ that has been entrusted to them, and they are to preach it and to teach it continually until the Lord returns. Christ has spoken to us through his apostles and prophets. This transition from apostles to pastors took place in the days of Paul and Timothy, when the last apostle who was commissioned by Christ himself as an eyewitness of his resurrection died the age of the apostles came to a conclusion. Then the foundation of the church had been laid, and it was upon this foundation, the word delivered by the apostles and prophets, that the church was then built up. And so Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus. He spoke and he wrote on Christ's behalf as an official emissary or representative, and this by the will or appointment of God. More specifically, Paul was appointed to serve as the apostle to the Gentiles. He had a particular role to play, even amongst the, the apostles of Jesus Christ. And I think this is something that we must remember as we begin to study this book or letter called Ephesians. The church in Ephesus came into existence through Paul's missionary efforts in that region, the church in Ephesus was made up primarily of Gentiles, that is to say of non-Jewish Christians. 
And a major emphasis of this epistle, as we will see, is that Gentiles have been grafted into the kingdom of God. There is no distinction between Jews and Gentiles in Christ Jesus. Paul teaches that the middle wall of hostility, which was separating Jew and Gentile under the old Mosaic covenant, had been broken down in Christ Jesus. For in him the two were made one. And in this epistle, Paul refers to the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's kingdom as a mystery. It is a major theme of this book that we are beginning to study. He calls it a mystery, meaning that it was revealed in ages past, but it has been revealed much more clearly in Christ and under the new covenant that he has inaugurated. I think it is a wonderful thing to transition from a study of the book of Genesis to a study of Ephesians. For in Genesis we did see that God's original purpose in salvation was to bring salvation not just to the Jews, but to all the peoples of the earth. And here we are opening up Ephesians, having been written so much further into the history of redemption, and we're seeing the fulfillment of that, that here this church was made up primarily of Gentiles. And Paul, being an apostle to the Gentiles, is eager to say to them, listen, what was mysterious in ages past has become so clear. You, being Gentiles, you being once far off, alienated from God, separated from the covenants and the promises. You have now been brought near. You've been grafted in to the people of God. And there is no division between the two now. What a wonderful book, brothers and sisters. I think this is one of the reasons I love Ephesians so much, because it, it brings out the richness of God's plan of redemption and puts it on full display for us to enjoy. You should probably know that in the past hundred years or so, it has become popular for scholars in some circles to question if Paul really wrote this epistle. Before that time, very few questioned Pauline authorship. Sometimes it feels to me as if the trend in our day is simply to question anything and everything that is traditional. Have you noticed that? It's just the trend. If you want to be sophisticated and, and, and well-respected, uh, then you must question traditional things. You, you have to think outside the box in order to gain recognition and notoriety. Uh, the reasons for questioning Pauline authorship seem to me to be very weak. Uh, the manuscript tradition, that is to say the ancient copies of the text of Ephesians, consistently testify to Pauline authorship. Uh, there, uh, we, we also see that the early church fathers also testify to it. And it has been the traditional view throughout church history until very recently, as I have said. Those who question Pauline authorship do so primarily for two reasons. One, they notice that the tone and content of Ephesians is very generic or general. Uh, the letter lacks the personal tone that we find in Paul's other letters. And this is strange, given that Paul was so familiar with the church in Ephesus. He founded the church. He spent a lot of time there, and we will say more on that in just a moment. And so I agree, it is on the surface strange that this letter sent to a church that Paul was so familiar with would lack uh, that personal, intimate tone. Names of specific individuals are not mentioned 
Um, it seems as if the letter is more generic, written to an audience with which Paul had uh, little familiarity. Two, the critics note that there are a large number of words and phrases that are unique to this letter when compared to Paul's other writings. And for these reasons, some commentators have come to the conclusion that some other, someone other than Paul must have written Ephesians, but in his name. I will uh, quickly make a few remarks about this. Uh, simply stated, I think there are other and better explanations for these things than to take the extreme position of denying Pauline authorship. One, as we will see in just a moment, it is likely that Ephesians was written to function not only as a letter to the Ephesians, but also as a letter to be distributed to churches throughout the region called Asia Minor. And I think this might explain the general and non-personal tone Two, we should not make too much of the unique words and phrases found within Ephesians when compared to his other writings. Paul was a very intelligent man, a gifted writer, and so I don't understand why it is so difficult to believe that one letter of Paul might use different vocabulary given the unique situation or purpose for that letter and then another have different terminology used. And three, we should not ignore the fact that Paul's custom was to write his letters through secretaries. This was common in Paul's day. He did not have a computer, friends. I'm sitting here writing this manuscript very rapidly on my computer thinking, look at how efficient this is. But in Paul's day, uh, he uh, wrote his letters by hand on very expensive parchments. And he did use secretaries or scribes to accomplish this. And these secretaries may have had some impact upon the final flavor of the letters of Paul for an example of this, see Romans 16.22, which says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. And so there, this man named Tertius, we don't know much about him at all, identified himself as the secretary who wrote for Paul as he dictated. S.M. Baugh deals with this subject well in his commentary on the book of Ephesians. So my view is the traditional view. I believe that Paul wrote Ephesians just as verse 1 says. You're looking at me right now that's thinking and saying to yourselves, why didn't you just say so and move on? I do like to give you some insight into some of the scholarly debates that are raging underneath the surface of brothers and sisters from time to time. When was Ephesians written? Well, it was written in A.D. 62 during Paul's imprisonment in Rome. Paul wrote Colossians and Philemon at roughly the same time. Again, Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now we must ask the question, to whom was this letter written? Uh, we read in the second half of verse 1 that this was a letter written to the saints who were in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. You should know that Ephesus was the most important city in Asia Minor. And if you're wondering where that is, think of modern-day Turkey. In that time, in the time that this letter was written, there were probably 250,000 people living there. And so this was a very large city, especially by ancient standards. Ephesus was famous for its temple, which was a shrine to the Roman goddess Diana, also called Artemis by the Greeks. The Temple of Diana, as we will call it, was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 
Originally, it was 425 feet long and 220 feet wide. Uh, Think of a, a football field or a soccer field. This was a huge, magnificent structure. It was constructed of 127 white marble columns, each of them being 62 feet high, if you can imagine it. Construction on this temple began in 550 B.C. The marble temple took 120 years uh, to complete. It was destroyed by fire in 356 B.C. and rebuilt afterwards on a lesser scale. Uh, The temple was so popular amongst the pagans that Ephesus emerged as the religious center for all of Asia. And I think this is the important thing to realize as we're trying to imagine Uh, the environment that this church existed within. It was a pagan environment. This city was all about the worship of the Greek and Roman goddess called Diana or Artemis. Uh, The entire industry of the city was kind of centered around this temple. It was a pagan environment, an idolatrous environment, a dark environment. I think it is important to remember that Paul, years before he wrote this letter, he did spend a good amount of time ministering the gospel in Ephesus. And so he had much to do, therefore, with the founding of this important church. The account of Paul's ministry in Ephesus is recorded for us in Acts 19. And I think it would be good for us to turn there. I think it would be good for us to read a portion of that text that is Acts 19 so that we might, one, have a better understanding of the culture in Ephesus, two, so that we might remember the trouble that Paul experienced there along with the rest of the Christians in that place, and three, so that we might better appreciate the impact that the Christians had upon that pagan culture through their witness. And while you are turning to Acts 19, I should also point out that Timothy... The Timothy that Paul addressed in his letters, now called 1st and 2nd Timothy, was a pastor in this church, in the church of Ephesus. Paul wrote to Timothy saying, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. And so I hope you are beginning to see that this church was a very important church in those days. Look now at Acts chapter 19. We'll read verse 8 and following. Here we find an account of Paul's initial ministry in Ephesus. We read, And he, that is Paul, entered the synagogue, which was a house of worship for the Jews. And for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God, But when some of those Jews became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, again, the way is what uh, the early Christian movement was called, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So Paul and this church also knew what it was like to have to find a new place to meet on the Lord's Day, didn't he, And, and throughout the week. This continued for two years, we are told, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Did you catch that? Paul's ministry in this place was so powerful and so effective that all of Asia, not only the people in Ephesus, but in the surrounding region, 
heard the word of the Lord, Jews and Greeks, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Why? Because he was an apostle. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that he had touched, that touched his skin, were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That is more than $500,000 in today's currency. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis or Diana, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple... And of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchans, who were friends of his, sent to him, who were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? That was the belief that this stone, uh, this idol fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet. And do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls, 
Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. I've read this passage to you because I do think it helps us to understand the culture in Ephesus, religious and otherwise, in the days of Paul. As we return now to Ephesians 1, I do ask you to see how bold Paul was in his proclamation of the gospel in that place. Do you see also how bold the, com- the companions of Paul were? Indeed, all of the Christians who lived in Ephesus were very bold. They worshipped God through faith in Christ in the face of much opposition. Many from amongst the Jews opposed the way. And the Greeks also took issue with the Christians, mainly because they threatened their livelihood. The Christians promoted the worship of the one true God and thus discouraged the idolatry which was rampant in that place. This impacted their main industry. And notice how successful Paul's ministry was in that region. Many believe, not only in Ephesus, but throughout his ministry there, rather through his ministry there in all of Asia. And brothers and sisters, as we consider stories like these concerning the experiences of Paul and the other apostles along with the rest of the early Christian church, I think it should help us to fight against the urge of thinking that things are worse now than they have ever been, or that our culture is somehow darker than those cultures that have preceded ours. Clearly, this is not the case. Paul, as you can see, he ministered in a very difficult and hostile environment. So did the other apostles. I think we must remember that most of them were martyred for their faith and for their unrelenting testimony concerning Jesus the Christ. The church in Ephesus was founded in a pagan environment, rampant with idolatry and hostility towards the gospel. And the church in Ephesus, more than being founded in this environment, flourished in this environment. The pressures that we experience in our day as followers of the way are not new. They have been experienced by the faithful from the days of Abel on to the present. In fact, I think one could argue that the pressures we face are very, very light when compared to the sufferings endured by our brethren in generations past and even around the world to this very day. The Christian faith is able to flourish in environments such as these because it is true and because it provides a certain and unshakable hope that goes beyond the grave. Indeed, in Christ we have the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. This peace guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In Christ we have hope. And so those who have come to believe upon Christ account the things of this world and the pleasures of this world and the comforts of this world as nothing in comparison to knowing Christ and holding on to Him even at all costs. And so, brothers and sisters, this letter was written by Paul to the church in Ephesus. And Acts 19 helps us to better understand what life was like for the Christians living in Ephesus in the days when this letter was written. Before I move on from the question to whom was this letter written, you should probably also know that 
there is some debate among scholars over the question, was this letter in fact written to the church in Ephesus? And unlike the question concerning Pauline authorship, I can actually understand why some question the Ephesian audience. While most ancient manuscripts, that is to say the manuscripts that are copies of the original written by Paul, contain the words, in Ephesus, and while the testimony of the early church fathers, that is to say those leaders within the church who ministered after the age of the apostles, also confirm that this letter was written to the Ephesians, There are a few very important and reliable manuscripts, ancient manuscripts, that lack the phrase, in Ephesus. And in those few manuscripts, verse 1 reads like this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints, faithful in Christ Jesus. The words, in Ephesus, being omitted. And this has led some to wonder if this epistle was originally addressed to them, or if that was address was added later, became a part of our manuscript tradition. I will admit, it's not an easy question to, to answer. Most of those who deny that this epistle was written to the Ephesians are of the opinion that it was either written to some other church, perhaps a church that Paul was less familiar with, or that it was written as a general letter meant to be distributed amongst many churches. And personally, I do not think that we need to choose between the view that this epistle was written to the church in Ephesus and the view that the letter was written as a general letter meant to be distributed widely among many churches. It seems to me that these two views can be held together if we consider the importance and strategic role that Ephesus, both the city and the church therein, played within Asia Minor. And I would ask you, is it not possible that the letter was written first to the Ephesians, with the understanding being that from there copies would be made available to and distributed to the other churches in that region? I think this would help to explain three things. One, it would help to, help to explain the lack of the phrase in Ephesus in some manuscripts. Perhaps that phrase was removed as the document was copied and distributed then to the other churches. Two, it would help to explain the general or generic style of the letter, which I have already referenced. Uh, remember that the generic style has led some to question if Paul was the author. And again, their reasoning is if Paul was the author then this letter would be very, very personal given Paul's history and his personal connection within, with the church in Ephesus. He spent so much time there after all. But not if Paul's intention was to write to the Ephesians and then for the Ephesians to pass this letter on to the other churches in the region for their edification also. And three, it might help to explain a mysterious little remark made by Paul in his letter to the Colossians in chapter 4, verse 16. I want you to listen to this. There Paul writes to the Colossians, saying, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, a city located about 15 miles to the west of Colossae, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, You give them this letter and you get the letter from Laodicea and read that one also. And many have assumed that Paul was referring to a letter that has been since lost. Think about it. Is there any 
book of the Bible called Letter, from the La- from, uh, letter to, to the Laodiceans. There is no such book. And so was this book lost, some have wondered. But I do wonder if this letter from Laodicea that Paul refers to in Colossians 4.16 was not simply the letter written to the Ephesians after it was distributed to the other churches in Asia Minor, ending in this city called Laodicea. Brothers and sisters, I'm asking you to think way back to our study of the book of Revelation now. Do you remember that study? It was a long time ago. I hope you do. And do you remember to whom the book of Revelation was addressed? It was addressed to seven churches in Asia Minor. And do you remember the order in which those churches were listed there in the book of Revelation? Remember that Christ walked in the midst of the lampstands and he addressed each one of those churches one at a time. I do have a map. I don't know if it will come up. It does. This map might even look familiar to you. Um, we probably used it in our study of the book of Revelation. Paul wrote from the island, I mean, excuse me, John wrote from the island of Patmos. He then sent his letter, and to which church did he address first? Ephesus. He sent his letter to Ephesus, and afterwards he addressed Smyrna, and then Pergamum, and then Thyatira, then Sardis, and then Philadelphia, and then what? Laodicea. Um, This was not a random ordering of the churches there in the book of uh, Revelation, but rather the order of the churches followed a familiar trade route that existed within Asia Minor. The letter was to be passed on from Ephesus around this loop, landing in Laodicea. And I am here simply wondering if the same was not true uh, for the book of Ephesians. I cannot prove it, but I think it is a possible explanation for the generic tone of Ephesians, for the lack of the phrase in Ephesus in some manuscripts, and also Paul's mention of this mysterious letter from Laodicea in Colossians 4.16. Perhaps that was the letter to the Ephesians at the end of its route through the churches of Asia Minor. Again, uh, the, the city of Colossae is located or was located only 15 miles to the east of Laodicea, which you see there on the map. Concerning the, gene- the general or, or generic tone of the letter to the Ephesians, I think this might be one reason why I would call this my favorite book in the New Testament, generally speaking. Many of Paul's other letters were written with particular people or situations in mind. Even Colossians, which is very similar to Ephesians in some parts, seems to address particular theological troubles that existed within that congregation. And of course, we are able to benefit from all of these letters uh, that we now have access to, even though they were addressing particular issues within those churches at the time. But Ephesians is more universal. It It presents a wonderful summary of Paul's teaching concerning God's plan of salvation from eternity past, It emphasizes the Christian's unity in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we are told, Jew and Gentile are one. The practical application delivered in chapters 5 and 6 is universal. It is useful to Christians living in all times and in all places. I think it is uh, this general or generic tone uh, to the epistle that makes it so beloved to so many. All of that to say... Though it be true that Paul wrote this letter originally to the church in Ephesus, it was written to also be distributed to other churches in the region, I think. And perhaps it is because of its general tone 
again, that this letter is beloved by so many Christians to this present day. It should not be overlooked, brothers and sisters, that Paul referred to the Christians in Ephesus as saints and as faithful in Christ Jesus. No, Paul was not writing to some small faction within the church of Ephesus, namely those super-Christians who were deserving of the designation saints. Instead, Paul is here addressing the entire church, all of the Christians in that place, and he is calling them all saints. Uh, This is true not only of the Christians in Ephesus, but in other places also. To the Romans, he wrote, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And to the Corinthians, he wrote, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And so why did Paul habitually address Christians as saints in his letters? Certainly it was not because all of them were mature, super spiritual, and without blemish. We know for certain that this was not the case in Corinth, and yet he called them saints. Instead, Paul called them saints from the outset so as to remind them of who they were in Christ Jesus. They had been set apart in Christ Jesus. In that sense, they were holy. They were set apart by Him. They had been cleansed by His blood. They were pure, therefore, in the eyes of God, not guilty of their sins. And Paul was eager to remind them of this from the outset so that they might become what they already were and live according to the new condition, their new condition, in Christ Jesus. He calls them saints for this reason. And to the Christians in Ephesus, Paul wrote, to the saints in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. These Christians were saints because they were believing. That is the force of the word faithful here in Ephesians. They they, they were believing, believing upon Christ, faithful people. Calvin has famously said concerning this phrase that no man, therefore, is a believer who is not also a saint And on the other hand, no man is a saint who is not a believer. Lastly, let us consider Paul's greeting to the Ephesians. That is found here in verse 2. To the Ephesians, Paul wrote, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As you might know, this was Paul's customary greeting to the churches. In this greeting, Paul prays that God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ would grant grace and peace to his people. Grace is unmerited or undeserved favor. It is a gift. And God's grace is the source of all that is good. To have God's grace bestowed upon you is to have the greatest of all blessings. To have God's grace bestowed upon you is to have all that you need. Those who are partakers of God's grace have been brought into a right relationship with the Father through faith in the Son. And when Paul says to the Christian, grace to you, 
It is an acknowledgement that God's grace has already been given to them, and it is a prayer of blessing that God would give even more of His grace to His people, to the nourishment and growth of their souls. Grace to you, Paul says. But notice that Paul does not only bless the church with God's grace, but also with peace. Grace to you in peace, he says. And of course, we are to recognize that these two things, they go together. To have God's grace is to have peace also. To state it negatively, to lack God's grace is to lack peace. By God's grace, we are made to be at peace, first of all, with God through faith in Jesus the Christ. And Paul will soon speak to this in this very epistle. He will note that we are all by nature children of wrath, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so he is going to emphasize this very truth that by nature we are children of wrath, stated differently by nature as we are born into this world, we are at enmity with God. We are deserving only of his wrath, but by grace, God has made us to be at peace with him. We have been made his children, his beloved children. Romans 5.1 says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So Paul there, in his letter to the Romans, emphasizes the same theme, uh, that we are at peace with God now. We are at peace with God because God has given us his grace, enabling us to believe upon Christ Jesus, who is the Savior of the world, the mediator between God and man. By grace, by God's grace, we also enjoy peace with one another. And Paul will soon speak to this in his epistle with his emphasis that in Christ, Jew and Gentile are one. I'm sure that you have noticed that the world is terribly divided. It always has been. Men and women are divided over race. They're divided over class, over gender. They're divided over culture. But Christ brings peace. In Christ we are one. And this is a major theme in Paul's teachings. Listen to what he says in Galatians 3.26. It is not Ephesians, but it is Galatians. He puts it this way. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, Paul says. And by God's grace, we are also made to be at peace within ourselves. This subjective inner peace of which I now speak, this peace that the faithful experience in the heart and soul is of course rooted in the objective reality that we are now at peace with God through faith in the Christ who has kept the law for us and who has atoned for our sins. Without this objective peace with God, there can be no true and lasting peace within the heart of man. For those who are in their sin will ever live with a fearful expectation of judgment. 
If there is no actual peace with God, there could be no deep and lasting experience of peace within the heart of man. Brothers and sisters, do we not see that reality put on display in the world around us continually? Christ came in part to give us peace. The end of the Gospel of John testifies beautifully to this. In John 14, 25, Jesus speaks to his disciples. He is there preparing them for his death, saying, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid, Jesus says. And then a little bit later in John's Gospel, this is after Christ has died and has been buried and has been raised again. The Lord says these things to you that I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. A slight correction here, that was uttered even before his crucifixion. And after Christ's death and resurrection, he appeared to his disciples. And John makes mention of this. We are to remember that his disciples were then afraid. They were hiding for fear from the Roman authorities, thinking that perhaps they too would be killed. And when he appeared to them, this is how he greeted them over and over and over again. Peace be with you, he said. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. That is John 20, 19, 20, and 26. Peace be with you, he said to his disciples again and again. It's as if Paul picks up upon that theme and uses it in his epistles. He greets his audience saying, grace to you and peace through God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Dear friends, God the Father, out of his great love for us, has sent the Son and the Spirit to give us peace. By His grace, He has reconciled us to Himself through the blood of Christ. This peace, the peace that has been secured between God and man through the mediatorial work of Christ, is the root of all subjective experiences of peace within the heart of man. In Christ, we have been reconciled to God. And the Spirit is now with us. The Holy Spirit of promise, the Helper, is now with us to actualize that peace within our hearts. As we believe upon God and rely upon His grace, we have peace in this world. And brothers and sisters, how important it is that we show this peace to the world. We must proclaim the message that peace with God is available through faith in Christ alone and by the grace of God alone. And we must also show the world that this peace with God has made us to be at peace with one another and even within our own souls. Fear, brothers and sisters, is actually a natural and a very good thing. God created us in such a way that we are able to experience the emotion of fear when we encounter certain things and perceive them to be a threat to us. The Christian is not called to suppress 
this natural gift from God. For example, if a Christian is hiking in the woods and comes upon a mother bear with her cubs, he does not sin when he feels the emotion of fear. You do understand that, don't you? That emotion of fear helps us to act according to wisdom in that moment. But you and I know very well that our emotions can run out of control. Our thoughts can go astray. Those affections that might be good and holy and well-pleasing to the Lord, when kept within their proper bounds, can easily overflow their bounds, leading us to sin. Love, as you know, can become lust. Righteous anger can so quickly turn into rage. And reasonable fear can easily turn into irrational and faithless fear. And it is this kind of fear that that Christ forbids us from entertaining. We are to remember that he himself has said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and afterwards and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear, Christ says. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him, that is to say, fear God. And not five, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, Christ reasons with us? Are not, and not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, Christ says to us. You are of more value than many sparrows. The point of it is this, brothers and sisters, by grace, God the Father, through the Son, and by the Holy Spirit, we have peace. Rejoice in the Lord always, therefore. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, may that name, that title of yours, that you have invited us to address you with, Be a great comfort to our souls. You are our Father. And you are our Father in heaven. You are God most high. The creator of heaven and earth. You are almighty. And so Father I pray that we. Having been reconciled to you. Through the blood of the lamb. Would would indeed be at peace. Knowing that you are our Father. Who cares for us. And who is able to preserve us. And keep us according to your will. Lord, may we as your people be found living in daily dependence upon you with hearts filled with faith. May it be said of us that we are saints and faithful in Christ Jesus, Lord. Increase our faith where it is lacking, we pray, and bring comfort to our hearts. We do pray, O Lord, that your name would be exalted in all the earth and in this place. Show us, Lord, how we might testify to your goodness how we might point to Christ as the only mediator between God and man. Our prayer, O Lord, is that your kingdom would advance in this place and that your name would be most glorified. Father, give us opportunity, we pray, 
to speak of Christ and to show the world how he indeed has given us peace. Father, we do pray for our daily needs also, for you have invited us to. Our prayer is that you would provide for us, Lord, our daily bread, that you would keep us healthy and strong. Father, that you would bless those around us in the same way, O Lord. We look to you for our daily provision, and we trust in you. Father, we pray that you would help us to learn how we might obey your law in this place, living in obedience to your word. We pray that day by day and Lord's day by Lord's day, we would be quick to truly and sincerely turn from our sins, to repent and to ask your forgiveness. Lord, and may we never forget to forgive one another in Christ Jesus. We do ask, Lord, that even now as we prepare to leave this place, that you would guide and direct us day by day, that your word would be a lamp to our feet, that you would keep us from evil, O Lord, and help us to live in a way that is most pleasing to you. It's in the name of Christ that we pray these things, and all of God's people say, Amen.